Hey everyone, just one note before we get to today's wonderful episode with Betty Goldstein and her story. We have a very special event coming up. Happy holidays, everyone. It's that season. It's the holiday season, the winter season, the Christmas season, all those wonderful seasons that people come together and 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 gather and and and, and share stories and meals and everything else. And so Adam and I want to invite you to something. We're doing the first Notes on Your Notes holiday storytelling event. We know that many of you are very separate and isolated this year. And on December 13th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, we're going to be doing a very special um, event. It's all going to be stories about the holidays and the winter season. And we would love for you to be there. Yes, it's, it's going to be a wonderful gathering time. And it's again, it's Sunday, December 13th, which is just right around the corner. So it's not, you know, that crazy frantic time just before the last day. But it gives us a time just to pause and hang out and be be together with like minded, like spirited artists and hear 10 amazing stories from 10 amazing, you know, uh, creatives. And you, oh, you know what, Adam, you know what I'm going to do? Tell me. I'm going to light a fire in my fireplace. <laughs> Josh has a fireplace, even though he lives in L.A., Mm -hmm. and uh, he's going to light it and that's beautiful and uh, the zoom link is in the show notes so there's not much you have to do just yeah. click on that uh, and it'll also be on the website so just come grab a latka some eggnog whatever you're into <laughs> and uh, come hang out and listen to some stories with uh, the notes on your notes community now arriving downtown santa monica station I'm Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend Zellner. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. We are back. Week two, everyone. Week two. And we are with the amazing, the illustrious, the well-spoken, the articulate, Betty. Hi, Betty. Hi. Betty Goldstein, welcome back. You're week two. We had a tremendous story from you last week. And we'll just say briefly to our listeners, if this is the first episode you are hearing, you might want to go back and listen to last week's episode where Betty gave us the first draft of the story she's working on. And we gave her a round of notes. And then we're going to talk about what Betty did with her notes today. So it's all about the story development process, seeing how stories come to be what they are. So that's just an opportunity for everyone uh, at home. If you would like, you can go back and listen to last week's episode. Or you can listen to this week's, and I'm sure get many valuable tips from it. So Betty, maybe we should start with the first question. How did you feel this past week? Um, I felt fine. I was a little bit stressed out because I kept putting it off and putting it off. And then as we got closer to today's uh, podcast, I got to work. Wow. Joshua, there's a word. It starts with an account. It ends in ability. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a deadline. Yeah. So, I mean, what was that process like for you in the last 24, 36 hours or however long it was? Well, I drank uh, like 11 kombuchas. Nice, nice. And um, I had more energy than I've experienced all week. Great. Somebody does? Yeah, I don't think kombucha is a stimulant, but um, oh, you know, yeah. I think it was a probiotic, so what, what carb could it do? 
and I like something cold and fizzy, and I don't drink soda. Excellent, excellent. And did you find did you find the notes um, uh, uh, challenging or or helpful or well, did you write around it and then trim later? How, how did that work for you? Well, actually, I didn't like the notes. Great. I, I mean, I liked I, I I liked your points of view, um, but you know, you you gave me a very challenging homework assignment to uh, go deeper into the characters of of the story that I presented last week. Mm-hmm. And so I did that and it really uh, you know took me on a trip like it, you know when I was very young and even before that and uh, you'll you'll see it in in the reading today. And um and what it did was that it created lots of little pieces of a puzzle that have to be uh, reassembled if I'm going to use it. And there might be pieces there that I don't wish to use. But I wrote that just to you know, get my um, mind in gear so that I could do the assignment. So to um, give uh, 3D uh, reality to the characters i had to go back and describe who they were and how they started out in life oh wow and and what they became and and how that will you know impact the and affect the rest of the story that goes forward so for those listeners who didn't tune in last week this is uh the beginning of my autobiography i call it my autobio i love it so Betty, just for people who really want to get deep into the weeds of process, because um, what Josh and I did last week is we gave Betty a bunch of notes and there were some thematic things that came up around wanting from your point of view around character and depth and characters, how they felt about one another. So we gave you a bunch of like observations really and suggestions. And I'm curious how you translated those into more. Like what did, how did you interpret, because this is a big thing that Josh and I talk about is how do you work with notes? How do you translate notes? So what was your process? Did you take them and just started writing about the background of your mother? Like, what did you, how did you work with the notes? Well, I read them several times and then I put down uh, the, the page and then just began writing uh, what had happened before the opening scene to what I read last week. And then I also went over uh, the opening scene from last week, and I made a few little edits. Uh, it doesn't change, I don't think it changes the story that much, but maybe a little bit. And so I've included that today, along with, altogether I have eight scenes. Love it. Out of, out of the two that I uh, presented last week. Well, actually, that's a really, that's fantastic, because I, now I can't wait to hear it, because if you went from two scenes to eight scenes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm already fascinated. So what does, in that longer write period that you were doing around, you know, discovering more background, more antecedent condition, more, you know, what discoveries did you make there that found its way into what you're going to work with today? Well, I discovered that I remember a, a lot of details from long ago. Mm-hmm. In, including things that my parents told me from before I was born. Mm-hmm. And then I verified some of the information with my 96-year-old aunt, one of my mother's siblings who lives in Florida. Mm-hmm. 
And so, um, you know, I, I believe that research is an important part of my process. Mm -hmm. Also, I believe in kombuchas and uh, listening to music while I write. Oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a firm believer in kombucha, especially you know with ginger kombucha. You know, that's that was it. Was the le the lemon ginger? Yeah, it's it's. Okay. Yeah, it's a critical part of anyone's creative process. I, I agree. Going back to Costco, this is not a commercial for Costco. This is turning into a real. Uh, is there some sponsorship deal? I, I, I am going to suggest you know cacao bars as well, but that's you know that's for late night. Um, well, I, you, anything else, Adam, or should we just jump in and, and, and hear and hear the next round? No, I think uh, I think we're ready. I will just say for the people at home who work on this stuff. Um, what Betty is talking about is a really valuable thing, which is that instead of worrying about what goes in or out of the story as you've written the first draft, good depth work and exploration means you go in whatever direction the note calls you in, and you don't worry actually about what's in the next draft because it'll all be cold and edited later. And so sometimes people will resist a note because like, well, this has nothing to do with the story. And what you're doing about it, which is really good, is we don't know what the story is, right? We don't know what the story is, we've been through the process and you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, the author, don't know what the story is yet. Yeah, okay. we're discovering together. And yeah. notes are just helping along that discovery. Saying, what's down this alley? So, okay. So basically this is morphed into to eight scenes. Okay, so go ahead and whenever you're ready. Okay. The year was 1948. Harry S. Truman was president. Mahatma Gandhi had begun his fast unto death when an assassin's bullet killed him first. The Kinsey Report made headlines with sexual behavior in the human male. And I was born in Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, the first child of David and Rose Goldstein. My parents and I resided in a Quonset hut in the Brighton Beach projects with other veterans' families. After my father completed his military service, he got a job as a traveling salesman selling vitamins, laxatives, and cod liver oil. His assigned territory was America's Midwestern states, so daddy was seldom home, leaving me and mommy alone for long spells. Dad's employer had no reps east of Chicago, so my pop decided to expand his territory to the Pacific Ocean. He drove our 1947 Chevrolet Stylemaster down Route 66 stopping at every drugstore along the way. He marveled at the stark beauty of the Mojave Desert, and when he reached Riverside, he slowed down to inhale the fragrance of the orange blossoms. Right then and there, my father was bewitched in love. With the snow-capped San Bernardino Mountains in the distance and miles and miles of orange groves stretching to the blue ocean. From a phone booth at his motel, he telephoned my pregnant mother and told her to start packing immediately. We're moving to California. That same night, my mother's labor pains began. Neighbors drove her to Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, and before dawn, my sister Louise was born. Daddy's company paid for our move to California. Mayflower Movers did all the packing for us. Years later, Dad often joked that our half-full kitchen garbage can was neatly boxed up and and transported across the United States. Our propeller plane made several stops along the way to California. Back in those days, children under three rode for free as long as they sat on their parents' laps. 
Mommy instructed me not to tell anybody that I was three and a half. After takeoff, I was reckless, restless, sharing Mommy's sweaty lap with my newborn sister. So I climbed down and somersaulted up the center aisle, announcing to everyone, I'm Twee, going on four. Mom accompanied me to the toilet in the sky. I held onto her hands with all my might, terrified that if I released my grip, I'd fall through onto the Rocky Mountains below. And I wasn't feeling well. I was hot, cranky, my nose was running, and worst of all, my skin was erupting with a colorful rash, which turned out to be measles. My mom opened up her cosmetic bag and smeared beige pancake makeup all over my feverish face so as not to alarm the other passengers. We were exhausted when our plane landed in Los Angeles. On the way to the duplex apartment dad had, had rented for us, I realized that I had left my doll Daffic on the plane. After daddy dropped us off, he drove back to the airport and retrieved Daffic. It was a hot, stifling August afternoon in 1941, and Coney Island Beach was a wall-to-wall -wall carpet of perspiring humanity in bathing suits waiting for a cool ocean breeze. 19-year-old David was thigh-high in the water when 16-year-old Rosie accidentally bumped into him. She apologized to him. He apologized to her. She liked his thick, wavy hair. He liked everything he saw. Rosie grinned, winked, and then she splashed water into his face. David splashed her back. It immediately escalated into an intense yet friendly water fight. They introduced themselves. David told Rosie he was 24. She told him she was 21. Minutes later, they walked into the deeper water holding hands. Late that afternoon, under the pilings of the boardwalk, boardwalk and on a shared beach blanket, they confessed their true ages, and after sundown, they kissed and agreed to meet the following day. David began calling on Rosie. Her parents were not enthralled that her beau was an unemployed high school dropout, but they could see he was a bright, affable, and more important, he was Jewish. David, the youngest child of Samuel and Bertha Goldstein, grew up in New York's cold water tenements. His parents were regularly evicted for failure to pay rent. They always moved to another unheated, wretched abode, often worse than the apartment they had left, just left. Moving was relatively easy because they had little to carry, just tied bundles of clothing, pots and pans, and his mother's Shabbat candles. The whole family slept on the floor because they owned no beds. One night, David was awakened by a rat biting his toe. David's parents had no time to take care of their three children. His father, Samuel, worked all night as a baker and slept during the day, while David's mother, Bertha, ran the bakery counter 13 hours a day. She left the baby David in his preambulator, preambulator parked on the sidewalk all day outside the bakery door. When she found an opportunity to take a short break, David's diaper would be soaked all the way to his neck. And, tenants upstairs from, and the tenants upstairs from the bakery, too lazy to make a, down, a trip downstairs, tossed their garbage out the windows, making direct hits into the baby carriage. David was bored with school and played hooky constantly. His parents had given up on disciplining him by the time he was 14 years old. At 16, he dropped out of high school and refused to get a job or help his parents at the bakery. He spent his time hanging around pool halls and shooting craps like a big shot. Rosie was a popular girl at Washington Irving High. 
She was talented in art, but poor in math. Her friends called her sophisticated Rose because she smoked cigarettes and blew smoke rings at the boys to taunt them. When Rosie turned to high school, returned to high school that fall, instead of paying attention to the lesson at the blackboard, she doodled self-portraits of herself with a cigarette from which puffs of smoke rose into the air in the shapes of hearts and the initials DG, David Goldstein. David wanted to make a good impression on Rosie's family, so he got a job at the docks unloading freight. When he called on Rosie, he brought flowers for her mother. Now he had money to take Rosie and her younger sisters to the movies and treat them to ice cream sodas. That December, Pearl Harbor was attacked and David enlisted in the army. Shortly thereafter, he received orders to report for duty. And the following week, they got married at Congregation Tamatora Adirath L on East 29th Street. Rosie's Hungarian-born parents had arrived in America in the early 1900s and had quickly acclimated to their new homeland. Eddie owned a carpentry shop on the Lower East Side where he fabricated shelving for the United States Post Office and custom cabinetry for boats and yachts. Anna had five diamond rings from Eddie, one for each of the five children she bore him. Eddie and Anna wore fashionable attire for Rosie's wedding and reception and footed the bill. David's Lithuanian board parents stood out like greenhorns when they arrived at the shul for their son's wedding. Although they had emigrated to the United States 27 years early, their English was poor and Rosie's parents spoke no Yiddish. David's, okay. David's father, Samuel, worked nights as a baker, and while he slept during the day, his wife Bertha ran the bakery counter. Bertha had no diamonds, nor anything made of gold, except for her married name, Goldstein. Rose's parents and siblings were not eager to welcome the Yiddish-speaking Goldsteins into their family's fold. Neither the bride's parents nor the groom's parents ever saw each other again after the wedding. Rose and David were painfully aware of their family's social class differences. David was ashamed of his parents. Rose hated that her father had referred to David as the Litvak. Thus the seed was planted to move far away from Brooklyn. They hadn't devised a plan yet because honeymooning was paramount, paramount on their minds. In another week, David would begin basic training and then shipped overseas for the next four years. To this day, I can quickly draw the floor plan of the Quonset hut we moved back, we moved from back in 1951. I had my own bedroom and mommy and daddy kept my outgrown crib in theirs. I had a boyfriend back then, the same age as me, and he lived next door. His name was Myron Taub. We rode our tricycles on a cement path between our Quonset huts while our mothers looked on. My father's mother, my grandma Bertha, died before I was born, so Grandpa Sam came alone to visit us. He always brought challahs, onion rolls, and light-as-air, sugar-coated kittles from his bakery. My mother's parents came over when my father was not at home. They would order Chinese delivery. Grandma Annie gave me a blonde-haired doll who I named Daffik. Her blue eyes shut when I laid her down in her little doll bed and snapped open when I sat her up. Grandpa Eddie carved a little wooden chair just the right size for me, which I used as a step stool. 
I would stand on it to reach the bathroom sink to wrap my lips around the faucet. I also used it to climb up onto the window ledge while mom was distracted. One day, I lost my balance and fell through the open window onto the grass below. It was a short distance to the ground. I didn't even cry. I'm not sure my mother knew I was missing. One afternoon, I was awakened from my nap by a mournful howling. I got up to investigate and found my mother in her bedroom, lying face down, sobbing into a pillow. I climbed up on the bed and gently caressed her shoulder and said, what's wrong, mommy? She raised her contorted wet face and snarled, leave me alone. I ran back to my bed and put my face into my own pillow. I couldn't understand why she was being so mean to me and why was she crying? After that incident, whenever my mother cried into her pillow, which was often, I stayed away. That's all folks. That is a lot, Betty. <laughs> well, I'm going for quality, not quantity here. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, I will, um, from a process perspective, I'll just point out for people listening that Betty's first uh, part of what she read, which was uh, the year 1948, uh, up to the move to California, was what you shared last week. And then, if as I understand it correctly, everything after that, beginning in 1941 with David and Rose meeting in the water, is the beginning of the new exploration. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, you certainly allowed yourself permission just to explore all new territory as it relates to the background of these characters which ultimately will have an impact on how these characters behave and how they're set up in, in, in the first round, right? Yes. Knowing all this, and this is kind of what Joshua and I were asking you to do last week, which is to explore what, how these characters feel about each other and what their background is, what their point of view is on one another, where the, where the conflict comes from and where the conflict comes to drive the different decisions. And you certainly did that. You know, we have such a more complex window into, for example, David and why he might go west, right? Um, before I get into Lime Valley notes, Joshua, did you want to jump in and give some overarching? I just want to say well done, Betty, in terms of what I call putting more clay on the table because this is exactly the kind of mm, source material that needed to be excavated. And then at one point, not now, but at one point, there's a, a paring down, a shedding process, which you would then put it through your magic, uh, uh, Betty, and, and get the essence of in like one or two lines. But this is, I mean, I'm going to go over in, in, in high detail some of the imagery that you've already created and how that could lead to amazing sound bites. So, well done. Thank you, Awesome. Um, so why don't we go through initially before we give you additional notes. And I think for me on my end, I have integration notes um, around how you can use some of this quote unquote clay to work it into the first, the first part of what you wrote. So Joseph, do you want, should, why don't we start in, in 1941 with the new material? Okay. Does that work for you? Yeah. So the meeting is just phenomenal. 
right? There's something uh, just beautifully innocent about meeting in water. I mean, I am no student of uh, mythology, but there's something mythological about that going on in the background. Um, and just little details, like he was attracted to her thick lady hair, um, and then there's an escalation, uh, and then fairly soon they were holding hands in the water. And imagistically, I was just like, are they holding hands in the water? You know what? Deep water. Deep water, right. So they go deeper, right? Because already there's some sense that there's going to be secrets in this relationship, right? And you, you let us know that because uh, they, you said they later confessed their true ages. So we know, and, and, and they may not even be aware of it in that moment, but that's probably going to play out later because there's going to be various levels of acceptance from each of their families around this union. And so this idea of what of concealing is set up early, which I thought was great. Um, and then you also set up early that they, you know, that David grew up in the cold water tenements. Um, the detail about the Shabbat candles is one of the one, they didn't have much to carry after each eviction, but that was a beautiful detail. Um, just really good, Betty. Just like, you know, we talked about, I had a thought as you were reading, I was like, Betty had seven days to do this and she works very efficiently and she wrote this on a deadline. And it's just, that's just one of your strengths is that you can get still, for a first draft, it still is extremely clean. Extremely clean. Like, so, um, and you're setting up what, one of the things that I want to talk about later and in integrating into the previous draft, but which is class, is a, class is a shaper of, of decisions. The different classes from which each of them come from impact the children, which impacts the decision-making in the present time. We'll talk about that later, but you set it up really well here. Josh, you want to jump in? I'm going to just echo pretty much what you guys just talked about, but, um, you gave a description of David and Rosie, and in the description, you let us know that there was already that contrast. Uh, can, you, can you give me the two words that you use for both those characters in the intro or in the beginning? Do you remember those? It was like, it was like you know, Rosie was sophisticated and David was something else. You said, you said it in a, in, a, in a fantastic way. So, hmm? Yeah, her friends called her sophisticated Rosie. Yeah. A cigarette. Right. And then and then David had something else too, right? There was some sort of description of David. Uh, oh, my grandfather called him the Litvak. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know that term. Yeah, what is that? Jewish term, right? Litvak? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a Lithuanian Jew, uh, most likely shtetl-born um, primitive. Primitive, right. So I, I got the feeling of like Hamal, like which is primitive, the person who bears the burden, the, you know, the laborer. And so you already, in because I, I didn't know that word either, but I got, but by the way you said it, I felt that. And so you already have the separation of almost Romeo and Juliet, you know, the, 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 the two classes that you guys have already talked about in terms of the separation. So you intonate it at the very beginning, and then you give me the detail later in the story, and that's fantastic. Then, then you do this very old, old traditional thing of the little girl who hits the boy and runs away. You know, um, hmm? she was wait, wait. 
you did it with splashing water, but it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing because I can't tell you how much I like you. I, I hit you and run away or I play with you in a certain way. And then I also love how you put in the element of that. They've already started to lie to each other. They, the relationship starts with a lie by them telling each other how old they are. So I love that because it means that there's going to be more lies coming. And of course, when, when you wrote Deep Water, I was like, oh, Betty, you're just nailing it here. You know, it's just, I, I love that imagery. Um, and then to land it in terms of 1940, you use that terminology of calling on. And that's such a, you know, I'm calling on so-and-so. And I was like, right on, because, um, you know, that, that throws me back to plays like The Glass Menagerie when they talked about the gentleman caller you know, and how boys would only go as far as the living room or the parlor or whatever word they would use back then. Um, and I just, I just love that. Uh, and also later you talked about David being in, into like pool halls and playing craps. And that's so specific to this era. So just wanted to call that out. Okay. So many good things here. Joshua alluded to it. Uh, her what she draws, the smoke rings, sophisticated rose, and she draws the smoke rings, and the smoke rings have David's initials, right? That's right, DG. Hearts. I mean, it's just, in terms of detail work, like, if this were a film, I mean, that stuff is gold, but you can use it imagistically in your work, in prose. I wanted to pick up on something. There is something I was curious about around New York City geography here. It comes up a couple times in the reference to the Brighton Beach projects. It comes up in the Coldwater Tenements. And it comes up again at the marriage location, East 29th Street, a synagogue. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's the so, old New York. You're right. And I'm guessing, and I could be wrong, I'm guessing that people like from your father's family would have gone to a different synagogue in Brooklyn. And your mother's family would have gone to a wealthier East Side Manhattan synagogue. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so those are just, that's the kind of stuff that like gives us a window into where people come from. And all those little details without beating us over the head and saying, you know, David was from the poor shtetl and Rosie was from the merchant class Jews, you know. But you just are setting it up by letting us know the details of where these people come from. And then you go deeper. Like my question on that was like, I wonder if that synagogue looks different than the synagogues in Brooklyn. Also, what do the people look like at that synagogue versus what do the people look like at the Brooklyn synagogue, right? So just, you know, you don't have to answer that now, but like, just sort of like, because if David's going into that, he's, and, and you do it really well, because it's, there's an intonation, intimation that when David's parents show up to that wedding, they're a little out of place. Yes. Right. So I was just pointing out, I think we did that really great. Great details, like the in-laws see each other one day during the marriage. The other thing is, is that they're following a very traditional track, which is um, back on the days of when men were calling on gals, um, the, the guy paid for everything, you know, during the courtship. And then the, the um, what's it called? The dowry? The, the, the female, uh, the girl's parents always paid for the wedding. So I, I love how that detail comes in but it also comes in as a, as a severe conflict. And I'm gonna follow Adam's note, which is give me that contrasting experience in real time, meaning when, the parents, when David's parents show up, what's that contrasting experience? Is it a 50-50 split 
or did the did the the, the bride's uh, parents uh, and their family and friends outnumber David's? Do you know what I mean? Which kind of goes back to that West Side Story, Romeo and Juliet, you know, um, uh, theme. So I love that. The yeah. other thing, the other thing that came up was the contrast of the parent. Oh my God, the contrast of the parents, fantastic. And then you went on to say the seeds had been planted, and I love that. And how, and also you revealed that they never saw each other after that wedding. It's like, oh my God. So give me, give me some cues as to like what those turning points were. Like, was it on first brush, or was it when so and so took off his shoes? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm totally making that up, but. When was that choice point made, if it was made consciously, based on someone else's action? Yeah, and but I did have one question: Were these families? You alluded to the fact that David's family is Lithuanian Jews. Um, I was curious, just from traditions um, and sensibility and education, was Rose's family were they Western European Jews? Were they German, French? Like what? Well, they, they, they were Hungarian, and, and my grandfather was relatively, uh, you know, successful. They weren't millionaires or anything, but they enjoyed a much more comfortable lifestyle than my father's family. And, uh, and he saw to it that his wife had uh, diamonds. Yeah. And were there, are these all what we would consider reformed Jews, or was there a different level of observance among the family? Uh, uh, the um, Adrethel Synagogue is a an Orthodox congregation. Okay. It's, it, it still is. It was built before the Civil War. That's how old it is. Yeah. And um, and I don't know which synagogue my father's parents went to, but um, from, from the little I know, um, Judaism was the religion was important to them. To both your mother and father. Yes. Cool. I just. But I think my father's, my, my, my mother's family was more um, reformed. Yeah. Than my father's family. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is often what you see. I just was curious among some of the more educated, more successful, I mean, you know, Hungary, Central European. My grandfather might have eaten a ham sandwich for all I know. Yeah. But, but my, my father's father had a, a, a Jewish bakery and all the Orthodox women in the neighborhood would bring their um, casseroles to the oven on Friday afternoon to, it was a cold oven and they would, he would turn off the, the fire. And so by the next day they would be cooked without, um, you know, it's, it's a Jewish thing you're not supposed to cook on uh, Shabbat. Okay. Just, I, I, these are just exploratory questions just because I'm just trying to understand how religion may have, may, whether there was any conflict in this narrative around religion. It's just another layer of like, not necessarily conflict, but just different sensibility, orthodox versus reform, things like this. Um, but anyways, just something to think about. Joshua, I, I want to, go ahead. Yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, you need to do what's true to you, Betty, for sure, right? But I also like the idea that maybe they're on the same page or pretty close to the same page in terms of their religious background, but the how they practice the religion is what creates the conflict, if that makes any sense. 
because then then it's then it's really uh it's like it's mm, then it's really too bad because it's really it's the, the source of conflict really isn't the religion it's the character or it's the judgment that they have about each other and that judgment does need to go both ways like they need to uh, the, the mom's uh, sorry the your mom's parents need to judge them by you know being low class or you know in the shmata business or whatever you know working class and then the other people need to um you know uh, judge the other family because you know they're not as pious as we are they're not as you know devoted as we are or whatever the contrast is a good idea yeah it came up for me, Betty, in the in the detail, which I thought was great, is that in that David refused to work at the bakery, instead was hanging out at pool halls. Which shows, which is really great, because it shows that David has a certain amount of self-consciousness about his parents, and he doesn't want to live his parents' world. So in some ways, the answer to his problem is, mar I mean, you know, you go into this other thing, which is marrying up, you know, which is in a sense what David did, because he's so darn handsome and whatever else. Um, but it's also kind of unusual for uh, uh, people to usually, you know, women are the, are the people who marry up and men, you know, usually not. So it sounds like there's a slight reversal here, which is a really fun thing to play with. What, what Betty, what? I, I see your face. My, my mother often joked that she married my father just so that she could eat all the, the pastries that her father-in-law would, would bake. But uh, but shortly after they got married, my grandparents moved to Massachusetts <laughs> <laughs> because they they were broken. He lost the bakery and he needed a job, so he found one in Massachusetts. Mm. And uh, and they lived in the boarding house that used to be the home of Lizzie Borden. Oh wow! Go ahead and tell people who Lizzie Borden is. Well, she uh, was accused of murdering her mother and father with an axe, <laughs> <laughs> but she was acquitted, but uh, they never found the, the real killer, and, uh, and, and, and public opinion was that she, she murdered them, and uh, she just had a, a sharp attorney. Okay. The real, like, 1950s, 60s pulp noir story. And they even had a little song about her, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yes. Yeah. Um, Oracle House. So, I want to, Joshua, I would love to talk to Betty about process and integration a little bit, because I think it would help. Yeah, let's, let's just finish up the last couple of beats, sure. and, then, and then we can go into the next phase. I, I love that I love the I love the tricycle scene that really set the tone uh, that was really lovely for me and calling him your boyfriend at the age of three or four or whatever that was that was really sweet. Um, I love the bringing in the Chinese food because there's a whole history with especially with um, Los Angeles Jews, uh, you know, enjoying Chinese food as well as on the East Coast. But but, you know, I'm familiar with it from from this uh, coast. Um, and just this whole new world that you, you entered into in L.A., having an open window and then falling out onto grass and how that couldn't happen in, in Brooklyn or, you know, Manhattan or New York. Do you know? Because it's, it's, a, different, mm, it's a different atmosphere. No, it happened in New York, in Brooklyn. Is oh, that, that happened in New York? Haunted Hut is, 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 is one story. Ground level. Uh, 
oh, I, 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 thought, that, I thought that scene was taking place um, in your new duplex. No, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, and, and then I love the thing about your mom sobbing and, and you uh, encountering that. When I say I love, I mean that from the sense of a story uh, and, and your impulse to, to, to nurture and to, to talk to your mom. And, uh, and then your, your rebuttal or her, her rebuttal or refutal of that, um, refusing you. Um, and how that would set something else in motion. So you set up a lot of things, I feel like, you know, setting the seeds or sowing the seeds of, of, of your parents never seeing each other, having estrangement between the families uh, and um, the class systems between your mom and your dad uh, and your mom having secrets or something that she doesn't want to divulge. Uh, all those things you set up beautifully um, in, your, in your right. Thank you, Joshua. What else? What else, Adam? Uh, I just liked the clothes. I stayed away. Mm. Made me think of like a chapter in a memoir. Like, you know, you just want to go into the next chapter because you ended it. Also, even the way, the cadence with which you delivered the line. Um, also, the way you <laughs> delivered the line, leave me alone, which is what your mother says. It just makes us, it makes us, in the context of what you wrote today, it made me very curious of like, what's going on? What's breaking down? you set up all these things. This, you know, it's so cool when you set up like a biographical arc for a character and then you start to see the character experience discomfort and it's, you start to wonder about the realities of what have started, what have played out in the relationship and what's causing the pain. So um, I made me curious. Um, and so I feel like you could obviously write the next chapter easily. I was looking forward to it. Um, how did she get to this point where she starts to cry? Uh, I like that a lot. That will be dope. I don't like it. I mean, it makes me, from a storytelling perspective, I, it makes, um, yeah, it's like when we set up a history and then we see the outcome, we, we want to know how. You know, it's sort of like a prologue to a movie. Yeah. I thought prologues to a movie were interesting because they tell you what's going to happen. And I'm, I'm sure there are purists who hate this. And then it's like, well, why do you watch the movie then? And you watch the movie to find out how it happened, right? Or true stories, like you know. Roger Bannister, he, he runs the four-minute mile. You know what happens. You still go and watch the movie. I mean, do, are there any clues as to why she's crying from what I've written? It's, it's enough to, to deeply engage us and to create mystery. And she's obviously harboring secrets and, and, and things of the past that give her pain that she's not willing to share. And so that's, that's clear. And the, the why of it, the porqué, you know, will be revealed. And we know it will because we're in good hands with you, right? So, but, but you know, you're setting it up beautifully. And, and to speak to what Adam was just talking about is, is that that's the very reason that we all go to see Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or West Side Stories or, or, or to Titanic or, you know, name, name the thing or every single... Um, a romantic comedy is because we know what's going to happen before we even go into the thing. We know the storyline, but we want to see how we want to see how it unschools, how, and, and that's the art. And that's what you're doing beautifully here. Thank you. So, yeah. So Adam, let's talk about um, that, that integration. Okay. Thing. Yes. So, oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I, 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 want, I want to talk about one more thing that, that I, I picked up on, on this round. And that is, your dad, essentially, 
is Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman. And I felt like that just resonated so beautifully throughout, you know, throughout the story. And I'm so interested to see how that's going to, because, because you're also talking very, about a very specific time in American history. It's not just your dad. It's, it's, and Arthur Miller, you know, wrote about that in that sense. He was exactly it, right? A traveling salesman, right? Going out to the West, all those things and, and how that plays out. So kudos to you on that. Thank you. Okay. So, um, but I just wanted to talk to you about how we then take exploration and work it into our rewrite, because I think that's from a process perspective, I think that's helpful for our listeners and probably for you, because it speaks to this capacity to take a draft and then to make it more nuanced and, and, and rewrite. And, and I think, you know, Josh and I was talking about this, I think rewriting is probably 80 to 90% of the work. Um, someone like you who's super gifted at a first draft, maybe it's a little bit less, but um, you want it. What's that? You're overestimating my ability. I, I, I grow through numerous, numerous drafts before yeah. I begin to be satisfied with what I have. Right. I mean, good and bad, but good. <laughs> okay. So, and you know, I would also say we're going to do this for the purpose of experience for you. But my sense actually from listening to what you wrote is that you're like hot right now, even though you have to do this on a deadline, there's just lots of other stuff coming out. You could keep writing. Like this next chapter of this exploration is ready to go, right? Even though I just said, here's the prompt. These are all the reasons my mother's crying. And I said, Betty, go. You could go write that next chapter. So, um, but for now, I just want you to know, like have that skill of, Here's the expiration. How might I include it into it? So what I'm going to suggest and what you've done is you've done a beautiful job at setting up the class difference in the different worlds that David and Rose come from. Okay. And the question I had then is how much of this history is motivating David to go West? Because if you lay it up by just giving us a little bit in the opening about even one sentence about their difference, as Joshua said, you had these titles, right? Sophisticated Rose and Shtetl David. We're going to use Shtetl because that's slightly more understandable than Litback. Whatever you come up with, you could use Litback and explain it. You know, they met and they had their secrets. He was from a mer she was from a merchant family that gave their daughters diamonds. He was... He was from a family that moved every six months when they got kicked out of the tenement. We're going to start setting the table for decisions later. So when he ultimately makes that decision and he calls Rose and he says, we're moving to California. And where do people, well, historically people go to California to reinvent themselves, a new identity. We have a, we have, we kind of know where that behavior is coming from. Now, I'm not going to create it for you because you know the truth. And so you have to ask yourself, what was motivating that decision? What was he trying to get away from? And how did Rose feel about it? So that's how you might take all this work. And I know it feels like so much work. And you might just drop one sentence in. 
But now we kind of know where, we know, like we understand more the relation. And when, I, when Rose starts crying later in this story, we kind of can see where the, the seeds of the pain are. Is that making sense? Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Joshua, do you yes. disagree? I, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm just going to, I'm going to go into a different area because Adam covered that so beautifully. I'm going to, I'm going to offer up another event that I feel is like a very strong driver for, um, for this. And that is from the time their courtship began or, or when David started calling on your mom um, to the time that Pearl Harbor happened you have a sense of how long that is? Four months. Four months. Okay. So also, it, I'm going to assume, based on, solely based on what year it is, that they haven't um, consummated their relationship. Would you, would you say that's probably true? Um, I think it was consummated. But that's just my own opinion. I have no way of verifying that. Okay. So... So it's, it's a young relationship, right? It's four months old, whether they consummate it or not. And then what happens is, is an external event comes in that supersedes the relationship. Pearl Harbor, right? Mm -hmm. Then from the event of Pearl Harbor, everything gets on a fast track. So this wedding was probably uh, orchestrated in how little time? Very quickly. Yes. Right? So their whole relationship is put on fast forward because of an external event. That's really important because they haven't authentically gotten to a place where they really would traditionally get married. Usually it would be like the parents would get to know each other a little, you know what I mean? Like in a traditional sense. And this happens in four months as opposed to a year and then having a wedding planned and, and whether they consummate the relationship before or not, you know, there, there's usually a pregnancy involved within the first year of, of getting married, right? It's not uncommon for soldiers to get married before they're shipped off. Oh, I know that. I know. But, when they get back. I, I totally get it, but, but there's also a certain amount of pressure that's coming in from the outside that they wouldn't have done in four months that if, if Pearl Harbor wouldn't have happened, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I totally get that it's, it's normal for that to happen. And it's also, there's also some sort of agreement that also happens of like, let's not get pregnant before you leave so I don't have to bear a child on my own, right? Yeah. There's some kind of agreement. So then, so if you set that up with, uh, with, with, uh, with certain articulations in place, with certain energy in place, then what's going to happen is, is you set the stage for these four empty years. Right? Mm -hmm. And the correspondence or the lack of correspondence and the truth and the lies and the conveniences that happen in those four years, Right? Yeah, because I have the correspondence, by the way. I'm sorry? I have the, I have the correspondence. Great, so you can pull from snippets from that. Because I already know that the relationship was based on a lie in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So those lies are going to continue. 
So I want to see how much, right? Mm -hmm. So then when World War II is over and they, and they come back together, again, there's an external pressure for David to take his, his family away from the roots so that he can truly be the head of the household. Because in that neighborhood, he can't be. He's always going to be overshadowed by the past of what happened for the last four years, which is a secret which he's not going to divulge, your, your mom, and, and the external uh, tension between the two parents. Very insightful of you. So I'd like to, you know, work that material. And again, does it mean volume of material at the end in your terms of your final right? No. But just just enough to go, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can do it compactly. Yeah, yes, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, so, that's a great that's a great non-professional because I'm sure there is so much richness in that. Um, I'm sure Rose has all sorts of emotions around four years separation um, and what she experiences. Um, and the, it sounds like she's accepted. She, it sets up also this pattern where she's supposed to accept when he goes away because he goes away again as a salesman. So it's a really great note. And, and to bring it back to integration, I have, I have no doubt that there will be even just a few words or one sentence that will creep its way into the first, you know, the first thousand words of rolling this out that'll let us know a little bit of the tone of the relationship. Okay. And one of the questions I, I actually had was, they tell each other they're 21 and 24. That's what right. is their actual age? Uh, 16 and 19. Okay. So they're really young. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's why it's like Romeo and Juliet. You know what I mean? It's like, and they're pretending, they're already posing. And uh, I just thought you did that beautifully. And, and how coquettish she is in terms of both as a character, because she does that with the smoke rings and plays with other little boys. And, you know, she's already in control of her sexuality and pushing men around a little bit. And she's bold and she's brazen. And in that time period in the 40s, you know, that was really looked up to in a certain weird way in terms of Marlena Dietrich and all these other ladies that they were replicating, you know, in that time. And, and how sassy it was for them to, uh, to have short hair and to say things like, well, you know, if you want something, you know how to whistle, don't you? Just blow or whatever that famous line is from Casablanca, you know? It's, it's like it was, it was embedded in, in, in the females, um, at the young nubile females at that time. Yeah. My mother did. Yeah. And interestingly, she continued doodling pictures of herself smoking and blowing rings throughout her life. Did she smoke during her life as well? Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Was it, Benny, was there any um, sense like that she was 16 and that was not okay with her family? She was too young? Um, I doubt that she did it in front of her parents. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the smoking. I'm talking about the relationship. So they meet and she's 16. And then what, did, what was it, four months later, Pearl Harbor happens? That's right. 
and he goes to he goes off to to war. How much after that? Oh, he's gone for four years. But does he leave like immediately after Pearl Harbor? No, he enlists, right? No, Pearl Harbor happened in December, and and he left uh, the U.S. at the end of March. So basically, they have seven months between meeting and separation. Four months they meet. They meet in September, the end of summer of 1941. Pearl Harbor staff happens in December of 41, and then by March of 42, he's off to war. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and so they're they're getting married. They're getting married January. Like they got married in March. Right. Whoa. Right. Like my grandmother got married because the the idea. I don't know if it was just for them, but the idea was that if he died during war, she would get a pension. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was the motivation for a lot of them. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Widow's pension, right? So, um, my question is: Was there any charge for any of the families around a sixteen-year-old girl getting married? I'm sorry. What would, repeat the question? Was there any charge around the families for around a sixteen-year-old girl getting married? Is that viewed as too young, or is that just acceptable? No, I spoke to my aunt in Florida, and she said that uh, her parents were not against the marriage. And uh, and at the time, my grandparents were having problems in their own marriage, and uh, and they got divorced. They got divorced. Yeah, and those diamond rings have a different reason why he was giving them to her. Every time he flew to Europe to have an affair, he come back and give her a diamond ring. Right. I mean, these, these families are very different. Oh, yes. It's the 30s and 40s, and he's flying to Europe. Not a lot of people can do that. No, my grandfather did it. So just another layer of... Yeah, it's not, not in this book. Because it speaks to... Betty, it speaks to the choice that Rose makes. She chooses someone very different from her father. Oh, yeah. There's nothing in common. Okay. And basically, uh, my my father did not like his in-laws. Yeah. Not any of them. Not any of them. Parents or or my mother's siblings. Right. So, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna set all that up, and so when he makes those decisions to go west, they're gonna have a different context. Well, according to my aunt. My mother was very unhappy living in New York, and she was always cursing New York and saying, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. They were both for the decision. Both for it. Why do you think she wanted to leave New York? I don't want to give a spoiler alert. Oh, okay. You have to wait for the full. She had reasons very different from my father's. Right. Perfect. So I, that's what I'm getting as well. I'm getting there, there's an extraction, there's an, an element of extraction. And that uh, I'm going back to these classics, but in, in, the, in the same way that of Mice and Men, you know, where they keep going back to the same old story of how things are going to be better once we move and the, and the lies they tell each other that will never happen. And how both of your parents have their own reasons for wanting to move west and how if we move west, it'll save our relationship or it'll make it better. And we as an audience member sit there and know it won't. But, but, but they believe the lie. So that's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful setup. That you've I wasn't thinking of that when I was writing this, but yeah. Yeah.
it's but to expose it in which is what adam's talking about which is to expose that background and to see how both of them want it but for very different reasons known and unknown right and 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 what trajectory that sets up the the um uh, Adam, are, are we complete with with the with the overarching or or I mean? Yeah, I think this is great. I think the only question I had is Betty. Do you have any questions about the process around how we're working with you around? You know, I still don't understand what the process is, and even worse than that is I don't know how to use the software and what I'm using to write this stuff. <laughs> Crazy. So, um, don't worry about the software. If you have to handwrite it, you can handwrite it. Uh, I know some very gifted writers who handwrite, so don't worry about that. What questions do you have about the process? Okay, so um, are you suggesting I just go over this and give it more nuance or just keep writing or just go on to the next phase of uh, the history of, of, of me and my family? So I would, two different things. I, I actually am gonna say you, do, you should do both. I would like you to learn just to, to play with what integration feels like on a rewrite, meaning I'm gonna look at everything I wrote and I'm gonna just layer in a little bit to make this, to show what, to go back to what the notes from last week and you can listen back to these on the recording. How do these characters feel about each other? What are they running towards? What are they running from? What is their background? And just layering a little bit so we, so, and then, then as Joshua was giving really good notes, like dropping into scene a little bit. So you wanna practice that. And you want to just keep running with what's hot creatively, telling the next story. Why is my mother crying? Just, you know? And so normally I would probably say just keep running with generation and creativity and write that first draft. That's what I'd normally say. I would say for you, it might be worthwhile to take a half hour just to play with integrating into rewrite, just so you know what that muscle feels like. Normally what, normally what we do is just, let's keep running prompts, let's keep generating material, let's get it out on the table, and then we can work on shaping later. That's how you normally would work. For the purpose of this, I think you might get something out of learning how to integrate, re integrate notes in a way. Just so you, because it's fresh on your mind. Does that make sense? This is new for me, because my, you know, before you and Joshua came along, I was just writing uh, basically essays, you know, one to three pages in length, and um, just trying to you know, polish them as best I could. Yeah. See, Betty. It's, it's, see, Betty. I also I also know that you wrote a, a play because I went to it and it was okay. so loved. But that was a little different. Well, but it's the same. <laughs> but it's the same in relationship to having a longer narrative and to connecting the dots. And I know that you're moving in this direction, otherwise you wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's part of what, what draws you as an artist. So here's, here's my advocation for you. I got this huge smile on my face when in the beginning of our chat today, you said, I have eight scenes. Now, that makes me so happy, I can't even tell you. Because I love that you're thinking in scenes. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll this out in eight scenes. And those scenes are, are hand-picked because they're pivotal, they're choice points. There's a bunch of stuff going on in those scenes that make it 
mm, spark, right? Mm -hmm. And they're pivotal. They're really important, those eight scenes or 10 scenes or whatever number you want to give it. So here's my advocation. My advocation for you is, is, is to do all the notes that we talked about and write them, mm, write them like I'm, I'm using like a gesture to the right, write them in a different document, write them, write them as you would just write them. Like, don't think about your story, just write them. Source material is what we're creating, but do you know what I mean? Like you just write them. Then going through those scenes or that material that you wrote and extract some of the key stuff that's really important and put it into the eight to 10 scenes that you already have. Does, like, for instance, the wedding scene. We talked about the wedding scene, right? Mm -hmm. and, how, and how setting up the, the classes of the two families and, and the affluent family is hosting it and the less affluent family is, is the guest, right? Mm -hmm. And how maybe the affluent family who's hosting it has more people there than the people that are the guests. And, like, what were the turning points in that scene? So you wouldn't... So, so, and, and, and let's just say that, and let's just say that in your, in your writing in this other document, you write about how the parents are getting ready for the, the wedding and all these other things that you're going to write about. You just make discoveries. Well, you're going to take some of that material that you, that you discovered there, extract it, meaning take it out and implant it into the scene that you already have. And I can't even tell you how excited that makes me to think about you with your amazing abilities to do that. Now, I've been thinking about this project for a long time and about uh, I don't know, eight years ago or so, I telephoned the synagogue where my parents were married and the rabbi who married them was retired but he was still alive, he was over 100 years old. And so they gave him my number and we spoke and I I interviewed him extensively. And? And? And like a month later, he was dead. <laughs> so, Betty. Uh -huh. I couldn't have a second interview. So, Betty, do you think there are details from that conversation that would be interesting to work into the story? Yeah. And he didn't remember my parents, but he remembered my grandfather. But even just knowing who the rabbi is will give you... Well, it's, it's on the uh, ketubah, the marriage contract. I don't know, but even knowing what the sensibility of that rabbi is will tell you about the unity of your, of your father, your mother's family. So did he, remember, he, did he remember your grandfather on your mother's side or your father's side? My mother's. My mother's. I, I, sent, I sent photographs of my parents and of my grandparents and of my mother's siblings, so, but he only recognized my grandfather. Your grandfather on the mother's side, because yeah. it was the mother's side who paid for the thing, yes. so that means it's his, their synagogue anyhow, so of course he's going to remember. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we've already skewed it towards the affluent family. Yeah. So how did the rabbi treat or mistreat David and his family? So you're already setting up this really beautiful thing. And just one little turn of, of, of a thing that an example of physical action or something like that, that would, that would imprint that in your story would just be really powerful. How it's already starting. 
Okay. I'm to write this in my head for uh, almost a decade now. Well, you're doing it, Betty. If I don't do it, nobody else will. That's right. That's right. And only, and only you and your voice as well, Betty. No one's going to do it as well as you. Well, thank you. I, uh, it's going to be a challenge to stick with this project. You're up for it. Can, can, can I share something else that I thought was really amazing tonight? Was is when you went, you went phone booth, labor pains. And I'm just like, bum, bum. And I'm like, yeah, go Betty. It's almost like the phone call almost created the labor pains. Created. It's kind of implied. It is. And I, and I love that. Because, because, you know, they always say keep the mother calm and peaceful and relaxed. And, you know, we're moving to California. Huh? Huh? And then it already sets the thing in motion to go into labor. And I'm just like, that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, my father wasn't there for the birth of his second daughter. I don't even know if he was there for, for my birth. How'd you feel about that? Bring in that layer, bring in that layer, you know, because you have one, maybe one of your scenes is, is the birth of, uh, of your sister and, and you could bring that out in that scene. Was he completely absent, like not even on the phone? Like, get him on the phone, he's not answering. He was in California, she was in Brooklyn. No, I mean, I mean, but but was there any attempt to do like a, a phone call at least, or was there, or was there no attempt at all? Do you know what I'm saying? My father was at a motel and using a payphone. No, he didn't have it. There were no beepers in those days. Right, right. But what what, what I'm talking about though is the attempt. Like, is is there is there no is there no attempt on either side to engage, like? Does your mom say, oh my God, I'm going into labor. Call your, you know, call, call my, call, call David. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, I don't, I would have to just use my imagination. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because eventually he found out that he had a, a second daughter. <laughs> right. And, and what's his level of engagement? Because that also has a nice demonstration. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity to show his engagement his emotional uh, uh, availability, sensitivity, because he knows she's pregnant. He knows the due date. You know, he could not not know those times, uh, know those things, right? Mm -hmm. So then is he clueless guy? Is he trying to be there but not? Like, give, give me a little insight into that of like, does someone say to your mom, oh, let's call, let's call the hotel and let him know that he should call. And your mom goes, uh, don't bother. The timing of his trip west. He knew that my mother was expecting a baby and. And he still went. Yeah. Right. So, um, so basically finding out what we want, what we want to know is, is your father's emotional availability of whether, of whether he was cognitive of the coming birth and how much emotional energy does he have in terms of wanting to be or connect with his family or, and how much does your mom uh, understand that he is or isn't is he a lost cause and she doesn't even try or or does she, is she still having desire to reach out to him yeah. or have expectations so basically just have an emotional component around that and to and to show us in one one moment their reality yeah those are great notes from Joshua about how to work with scenes and dropping into scene and working with the emotional relationships and the reality for all the characters Betty thank you so much for 
sharing your story, showing up authentically, doing amazing exploration work. Thank you. Taking the notes fearlessly. Joshua, thank you for all your wonderful notes as well. Thank you, Adam. Lovely time, Betty. Always, always a pleasure to work with you and, and see your art just bloom and grow. So thank you. Yes. And uh, listeners, of course, always go back, you can always go back to the first episode of Betty from last week and check out what happened then if you are so interested. Betty, are you on social media for people who want to follow you or find about where you might be doing onstage storytelling? Uh, three times a year I post something on Facebook. I have accounts on Instagram and Twitter, but I don't know how to use them. Okay, so we'll just tell people, do you want people to find you on Facebook maybe? Yeah, they'll find me, yeah, Betty Goldstein. <laughs> awesome. Betty, thank you for being on Notes in Your Notes. Thank you.